Of women of the truth.
so much. You may be seated. For now, here we go. Good morning. Did you hear me the first time? Good. Good to see some dancing today and some cheering and smiling. It's okay. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's actually okay to be a little bit excited about the fact that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, that our sins are forgiven, that he rose again from the dead, that we have victory in life and a promise for eternal life. Something to be excited about? Perhaps. (laughs) And I love, too, the songs had so much hope in them today. And even that last verse, I don't know if you caught it, but it said, rise up, church with broken wings. Fill this place with songs again of our God, and I'm losing my words now, but anyway, Just bringing that hope, the hope that we need from Jesus. So bless you all this morning as we we gather here to worship him. Uh, My name is Don Fraze, and I serve here as the transitional pastor, and it's my privilege to to both welcome you and any guests or visitors today to our congregation, a special welcome to you. Well, I want to greet you with the words from Psalm 133, verse 1, that simply says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And let it be. And that is going to be our theme as we get to the message later. Jesus praying for us and praying for us as the church all across the world and here in the local setting to be unified in his name. So we pray for the God's spirit to move in that way among us today. Well, just a few things about our church family. So how's summer going for all of you? Good, good. I hope that you've had some opportunities to enjoy our beautiful creation and be outside and spend some time with family and friends and do some of those things as well as just all the regular work you still have to do, I know. But I hope and pray that there will be some times of refreshing this summer season. Well, anyway, next weekend as a church family, there's a couple events to help us celebrate summer. So first of all, for the men, there is a men's ministry barbecue next Saturday. Um, that is the 16th, and you're, if you want more information, men, on that, contact Jordy Braun, who is uh, in charge of our men's ministry. So that's next Saturday. And then next Sunday after the church service, which is the 17th, Family Ministries is ho- hosting a beach day down at Sask Landing. That sounds like a lot of fun, so be prepared for that, and we will do some summer fun uh, next, uh, next weekend. Well, talking also about summer fun, um, Pastor Darren and his family, as well as several other families from our congregation, are right now at family camp at West Bank. So let's be praying for them and praying for uh, West Bank and the camping season. But I also just wanted to share just a little bit about Darren to ask you to to pray for Darren and his family um, this summer, especially. Um, But um, I think many of you know that uh, during during the season when you only had one pastor and Darren was flying solo around here, that he did a lot of leading. And uh, from what I've observed from and heard in many conversations is that it's been very much appreciated. And yet uh, it's been a toll on Darren to, uh, to lead so faithfully and to be so busy and full during a whole season of church ministry. So anyway, Darren would never complain. That smile on his face is as genuine as I've ever seen anyone. But it's been my discernment, and I know others, that uh, Darren needs a bit of a rest and a bit of a break. And so uh, I've approached the elders and recommended, and they agreed, that, uh, that we give Darren a bit of an extended time off this summer. So he's actually going to be gone for about a month. So he's at family camp right now. He will be here uh, next week in the office and is actually going to preach next Sunday. Um, then he's back to camp for, uh, for speaking for a week, so he's going to be real busy the next little bit. But then from uh, July 23rd till August 23rd, so we've given him that month off, to just disconnect, to be away, and hopefully be refreshed. So I just wanted you to know that as a congregation, and, and just remember to, to pray for Darren and Chantel and their family, that there will be times of refreshing for them this summer, and that 
they'll be able to come back refreshed and ready for our fall season. All right, and the rest of the announcements and uh, other information is, is in your bulletin. I didn't bring it up here with me, but I noticed there's a long list of birthdays and anniversaries, so happy birthday and happy anniversary to those of you celebrating um, this next week coming up. All right, well, I'm going to ask uh, Scott Dirksen now if he'll come forward. Scott is one of our elders, and he's going to lead us in a time of prayer. So come on down, Scott. morning. Um, just to piggyback what Don said about enjoying nature, um, we were in Cyprus recently and it's, we were there last year too and yeah it's so much greener this year and it's just uh, amazing to see everything so alive. Anyway, um, this morning we'll be looking at some scriptures from the book of Hosea. This is the book that our family has been um, taking time to study together recently. Um, and I would say that Hosea contains some of the most striking and powerful metaphors in the entire Bible. The book of Hosea and the public ministry of Hosea begins in a very shocking, perhaps even scandalous way. God commands Hosea to marry Gomer, a woman who has been unfaithful to him. They have a child together. But then Gomer has two more children with other men. We empathize with Hosea, for this would be a very painful experience. But the rest of the book reveals that God is also going through pain, as his people have been unfaithful to him. He's tried to show his love to Israel, but they continue to run after other pleasures and other gods and other Gentile kings. At times, God sounds completely exasperated over what to do. In Hosea 4.16, we come across another metaphor that many people in this room can relate to. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, how then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? I'm not a rancher. I don't claim to be one. <laughs> but I have participated in the branding of calves um, and was taught the trick to keeping them pinned down to the ground while the branding iron was uh, stuck onto them. <laughs> it actually took two of us to, to keep this calf from running away. Uh, they seem small, but they're quite strong. Now, female, cal or female calves uh, are called heifers once they've reached one year old and have not yet had uh, any calves of their own. They are strong and very much have a will of their own. Getting them to go where you want them to go can be extremely challenging. Now, I know it's not the same thing, but last year we got ourselves a puppy. One of the reasons we got this dog was we thought it would force us to get outside more, go for walks, get some exercise. Unfortunately, the dog wouldn't walk. He would just dig in his heels. We would go for drags. It wasn't... It wasn't a logical response from him, uh, and nothing we said would change his mind. The only way he would obey is if the entire family went along. It's kind of strange. Eventually, he got to the point where he would happily go with anybody, anytime. But it was very frustrating for a while. Come on, Cody, we're not trying to hurt you. Let's just go to the park. Nope. <laughs> now these metaphors also work on an individual level. In our heart of hearts, we are stubborn. We are strong-willed. We are unresponsive to our master. 
How God keeps coming back and giving us chance after chance after chance is nothing short of miraculous. A couple of chapters later, we read a passage that is a little less dark and a little more hopeful. This is Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. There's a lot in these six verses for us to ponder and think about. Can we make a conscious decision to return to the Lord after drifting from his path? Can we turn to him for healing? Can we press on to acknowledge God with our words and actions? Or will we just go through the motions of dead religion and think, that's good enough? These are hard questions for each of us to consider. But books like Hosea make it clear that if we are not paying attention, we can be living the life of a stubborn heifer and remain unwilling to follow the road God has called us to walk. And it is my hope and prayer, and I'm sure many of you would agree, that we want to do the opposite of that. We want to follow God, regardless of what it may cost or how it may inconvenience us in our lives. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, for your patience as you work with us and deal with us stubborn people. Help us to turn to you, to acknowledge you, soften our hearts, mold us into the people you want us to be. Sometimes we acknowledge that will be painful, but we want to walk the path nonetheless. Give us the wisdom to do that. Help us to see the direction you have for us as individuals and as this community. In Jesus' name. stand with us again.
so much. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, Bridgeway Church. So, I'll have a few questions for you today. Um, Here's the first one. So, how many of you have already had some sort of extended family get-together this summer? Oh, not as many as I thought. Maybe those are all the people that aren't here. Okay, some of you are finally admitting it. Okay, how, how many of you have such a perfect family that every time you get together with everyone, it's just all bliss and great and there's never any drama? Okay, thank you. See, there's always one of those families that we're all envious of. Well, I start there. Um, Some of you may know, not most of you, but uh, this last week I was away and I was at such said family event. Now, um, this was a memorial for my stepfather-in-law who passed away during COVID. So this was one of those that's happening all over, I know, but one of these belated type of family get-togethers to celebrate his life and just to get everyone together from all over. So we were in downtown Vancouver with with um, where my mother-in-law lives in a beautiful, beautiful location for this, for this wonderful family event. Now, most of it went really, really well, all right? Now, I know this is online, so I'm going to tell this story very carefully. <laughs> Not that any of them will be listening likely, but, you know, just in case. Anyway, we had one moment in this family gathering where one family member got pretty heated and upset about something, and in a larger group setting of people decided to get up and basically point and shout at someone quite aggressively. Now, you can imagine when that happened that um, there was that big moment of awkwardness, right? You know, when something like that happens, and there's this big moment of awkwardness, and then he basically got up and left, and everyone had their little moment of awkwardness, and then someone probably cracked a joke or made another comment, and then you just tried to carry on as per normal, right? So that, that's kind of what happened. Now, unfortunately, I, because I was here, I came late, so I missed this event, so I'm just telling you how I heard it from my nuclear family later. But anyway, so, so my, my wife and my two daughters were at this event, so when the four of us got together later to have our post-family get-together discussion, of course, we had the debate about the event, right? So here, here was the main part of our debate, though. The debate was over. In that situation, was it best for us to just diffuse and carry on? Or would it have been, be- would it have been better if somebody would have actually said, hey, that was really wrong and inappropriate and called them out. Now, that would be an interesting debate, right? And I'm sure we'd all have different opinions. What ended up happening, of course, was the diffuse side, which is probably more often happens. But again, there would be, there was especially my two daughters who are pretty young and at that stage of life where they're going, oh, you older adults, you never want to stand up for anything. You're just so wishy-washy. They're going, someone should have stood up. One of you men should have stood up and called out this guy for doing this. And so we had a very interesting debate about it. Anyway, I hope your family get-togethers never have that kind of thing happen, but that's just... So anyway, as I, I was thinking about this, because I hope to do something that I hope will be a little bit fun for us today. How many of you have ever heard the CBC comedy show on the radio called The Debaters? Any other fellow fans out there? Okay. I know none of you want to admit you've ever heard of CBC radio. But anyway, <laughs> there, there is a show, a comedy show there called The Debaters, which I find quite funny. What they do is they take a couple comedians, and then they give them like a ridiculous question, and then they have to debate it, Right? And so one of my favorite ones was, um, it was the silly debate was over, is it better to shower or bath? So again, these are like really serious debates, right? And I just thought it was a hysterical debate. Probably my favorite point was when the person that was arguing in favor of showering is better than bathing. You know, so the bathing person was going on about how, oh, baths are so relaxing and, you know, you just get to lay back and enjoy the soak, you know, there's water rushing on you. And then the person that was debating for showers was like, who would want to soak in their own filth? Anyway, it was quite a, quite a funny debate. But that has nothing to do with that. But what I want to do with you today, if you'll permit me, is have some fun with you and have you play debaters with me. Are you okay to do that for a little bit? So as I said earlier, our theme today is unity from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. 
And so the debate question I want to bring up is going to be around the theme of, of unity. So, so this is how the debate works, though. So we're going we're to divide the room in half. Now, what's going to be tough about this is, uh, you know, this, all, this, this will almost work. So, so those of you on this side of the middle section, you're with them, obviously. And those of you on this side of this midsection, you're with them. Okay? So this is side A, this is side B. All right, so do we have the question up there? Well, we do have the question up there. So here's your debate question for today. Christians can or should always choose unity. Now, to play my game, to have this debate, this isn't about you necessarily um, speaking out what you think, but this is for you to take the side that you have and debate it. So, this side over here, you are going to be the for this statement. Okay, so you are debating, yes, this is true. Yes, Christians can or should always choose unity. Got it? You're the yes side. Side over here, B, side B, you are the no side. So you guys are going to argue against this, that no, Christians, this is not a true statement, that Christians can or should always choose unity. Everyone clear on what side they're arguing for? Okay, so I'm going to take the mic. Carrie, you ready for me? And you got a moment to think here. Now, we don't have time for many sermons, but uh, make, make uh, quick comments and arguments to your side. So, is anybody ready yet to start? I'll come to you with the mic. Okay, good. We got someone ready. Play my game. Thank you. This is better than youth group. Love always, unity not always. Okay, so obviously that was from the disagreeing with the statement side. Anybody else over here? This is the disagree side, right? I've got to keep it straight. I'll mix up. Any more arguments here? Anybody ready for the counter-argument? The yes side? You guys aren't very argumentative today. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Okay, thank you. It's not well thought through, but unity doesn't always mean agreement. Unity doesn't always mean agreement. Okay. So by that, you're saying, yes, Christians can always choose unity. Even it doesn't necessarily mean you always agree, but as a Christian, you should choose unity. Kind of? Okay. Try not to put words in your mouth. Just want to make sure I'm understanding. Okay, anyone else for the, for the yes side to this? Oh, yeah. So we have to because it says in the Bible. Jesus is praying for all of us. Even you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one. Case closed. Someone always wants to use the thus saith the Lord argument, right? Anyone else want to add to that? Scott thinks he can steal my sermon already, so that's good. Okay, we're ready over here. Anyone, while I'm making my long track all the way back to Harold? I'll go here and then I'll come to you. What's up, Scott? <laughs> to say may would imply that first there needs to be disagreement, difference, conflict for the unity to occur afterward. Ooh. I'm refusing to make comments on that one. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I uh, want to just take you back in history of the Mennonite Brethren Church. I think there were 17 people in 1867 that decided that they were not any longer going to uh, treat the Lord's Supper with disdain like they were being uh, taught, and uh, they separated themselves, and now we have a strong Mennonite Brethren Church in, in the world, and, and uh, I think that uh, they were not afraid to uh, disqualify themselves from unity. Ooh, if we had the lightning round like they do in the Real Debaters show, they'd, they'd have fun with that one. Someone would probably over there would say something like, yeah, and isn't it so great that we have all these millions of denominations because none of us can agree. <laughs> Good point. Someone else over here? The naysayers? Anyone over here? We agreeers. 
Come on. Play my game. Okay, one more comment. Never unity over the white elephant in the room. Never unity over the white elephant in the room. Okay, think I got it. Anyone else? All right. By the way, for any of you that are going to be really disappointed, I'm not going to declare a winner or evaluate your comments here. This is just for fun. Last chance. Okay, well, thank you for playing my game. Okay, can I switch back here now, Carrie? Well, this debate, like so many, as you know, now that you're thinking about it more and thinking of both sides, it's a tough one, right? Because just like the debate I had with my kids over should someone have said something because there needs to be ownership for when wrong things happen, but yet at the, on the other hand, when do you dissipate in order to keep the peace and keep the unity and not escalate things? And I don't know if anyone ever has a perfect answer to that. You know, if I was to make a general statement, though, to this debate, and this would come from years of growing up in the church and over 30 years now of being a pastor in seven different churches, I added up when I was thinking about it this morning. But unfortunately, my experience tells me that we have much more of a problem with obeying Jesus in this area of unity than we do with the occasional times when perhaps we have to dissent for some of the other values that are, that are perhaps trumping that. So that's all I would say, is that, yeah, I think we all love to, in debates, pick out all of the exceptions, but I think we have to agree that the overall teaching of Scripture when it comes to being followers of Jesus and walking in the Jesus way is to be a people of peace and to be a people of unity. And so again, fully aware of the exceptions, fully aware of the fact that as Christians, there are, time, there are times we've got to stand for truth and principle. There's so much work that needs to be done in the area of obeying Jesus in the area of walking in unity. And that's what Jesus' prayer is all about as we, as we come to John chapter 17. So next slide is just what I read earlier, Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Well, in John chapter 17 today, Jesus is going to pray to the Father and pray for all of us as believers in him and pray that we come to what he's going to call complete unity. Now, this is one of those what I call the crazy Jesus statements because it's like, how on earth are all of us messed up humans ever going to achieve complete unity? But it's what Jesus prayed for us. And so it's the target to aim for, even though it seems like it's a really far away target. But these are the words of Jesus. So let's read them together. So John chapter 17, um, verses 20 to 26. And this is the NIV if you're following along or it's on the screen. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples he was just praying for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, all of us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Hmm. The beautiful prayer and words of Jesus. Now today I'm going to try to unpack the idea of what is complete unity. But just before I go kind of down to where we are at in the local church, let's think big picture for just a moment. 
So what if I told you that complete unity was ecumenicism or the ecumenical movement? How are some of you feeling as I say that? I can feel the squirming in some of you already. And others are going, what's that? <laughs> okay, here, I'll, I'll explain for you that are saying, what the heck is that? Okay, so ecumenicism or the ecumenical movement is a unity movement of unifying the Christian church together. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it literally means. So the, ec the ecumenical movement started in Scotland, actually, in, in Edinburgh back in 1910 at an event called the International Missionary Conference. And it was basically a group of Protestant churches that got together at that time and were basically like, wow, we've got a big world to reach for Jesus. The church is completely divided because denominationalism has gone crazy. And we need to now call the church back to the, this kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, that we would be one and, and one in him. And that was, that was kind of how it started and that was the heart of it. Now, over the years, um, you know, like initially the, the, uh, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and some other mainline churches weren't involved, but then they, they eventually became a part of it. And then there was, because of the uncomfortableness of all of that, then there was lots of Protestant evangelicals that therefore weren't a part of it. And so that's why I think for a lot of you, if you're like around my age or older and you heard about the ecumenical movement or ecumenicism, you were often nervous about it. Now, the reason a lot of us were brought up to be nervous about it was because we often mis mixed up ecumenicism with pluralism. Ecumenicism is not about all religions being unified. Ecumenicism is about Christian churches and the Christian faith being unified. So again, that still may make some of you squirm, but just so you kind of know the difference, ecumenicism is not pluralism. It's a different movement. But anyway, that's, that's what it was and that's what it was about. Now, here's here, one thing that I found interesting, and Harold, thanks for bringing up our MB history today, because I did some MB history reading today, too, um, or this, when I was preparing for this message. And, what I, and I found this quote from one of our early theologians, and if you've been an MB for a long time, you will uh, remember John H. Yoder, one of our early theologians. Anyway, in the 1950s, in commenting about the ecumenical movement, this is what he said quote coming up here. He said, the unity of all believers is a scriptural command. Christian unity is not to be created, but to be obeyed. Interesting. And then another theologian um, speaking to this event as well, um, and I won't try to pronounce his name, but he said this. He said, through Christ and the power of the cross, we are all enabled by the gift of the Holy Spirit to break down walls of division between Christians before a watching world. Now this statement for me is both hopeful in the sense of Christian unity is of Jesus and that the power for that comes from the cross and the Holy Spirit. But it's also sobering to think about the walls of division in the church and to realize that the world is watching. And often, I'm, I, I bet if I asked you to raise your hands with this, I bet every one of you has had someone in your life who isn't a believer say to you, one of the biggest reasons I would never consider Christianity is what's with all those <clears throat> divisions and what's with all those denominations? How can I follow something that's so divided? And that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because there's a lot of truth to it that, that, it, is, that it is a dilemma. And you know, when we think about walls, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I know that, that my upbringing created a lot of walls between me and other Christians, let alone between me and what we called the world or all the distinctions we made in terms of Christians and non-Christians. And we, we lived in such a us versus them kind of mentality. And yet, even within the church, I'm saddened by, by the walls that I put up. And, you know, I don't blame my parents and I don't blame my church. I don't think that they ever sat me down and taught me this. But it was kind of what I caught from the, from the church culture around me. But basically it was things like, like Catholics aren't really Christians. They're just like religious people who go through the motions. Oh, so stay away from them. And also, oh, but those charismatics and those Pentecostals, they don't really follow the Bible. 
Their faith is based on emotionalism and all the crazy stuff they do, so avoid them too. And I could go on, but there were so many walls and barriers and judgments. And now when I look back, it saddens me because I, because I don't, I just think it was so wrong and so anti what Jesus taught and so anti being Christian and being and wanting to desire unity in the body. And so I hope and pray that even we think big picture of unity, that we're aware of the walls that we set up, that we're aware of the us versus them kind of thinking and being aware and then repenting of it. And being humble and being willing to admit, yeah, I've got walls, I've got prejudices. I don't have to defend myself on them. I have them and they're real and I need to turn from them. That's what repentance is. And say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow your command that we be one in you. And how am I participating in unity rather than building up walls? And that's a tough one for all of us, but, but a call to us in the big picture. And even as I drive around Swift Current, there's a lot of churches here. You all know that. You drive by probably about eight today. You probably drove by three or four on your drive-in to come here today. Now, on one hand, that's wonderful, right? Lots of churches means there's lots of communities worshiping and reaching people for Jesus. There's lots of different expressions. But there's also, again, that sad side of it, which is, wow, we are so divided. And again, good, lots of good in that, but also some tragedy in that. And boy, history can paint a lot of that. But I will move on now from the big picture down to us here at Bridgeway and Jesus' prayer for us and call to us to the kind of unity that he's praying to his Father about. So I want to suggest to you today that complete unity is relational, it's visible, and it's really hard work. So that's kind of how I'm going to try to, try to unpack it for you today. So the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for, this complete unity is relational because it's what theologians would call Trinitarian. You see, God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in God's very existence, God is relational. The relationship and the intimacy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our model of what complete unity looks like. It's amazing. You see, Jesus prays in here that we be one as he and the Father are one. So Jesus brings up this whole biblical idea of oneness. Oneness. Now think about oneness for a moment. Oneness does not mean sameness. Now think of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All incredibly unique and distinct expressions of God. And yet... In purpose and in being, and they are one. There's oneness in the midst of diversity and in the midst of uniqueness. That's their model, and that's their model for us. The other model of oneness in Scripture goes back to God's creation of marriage and the idea of two people coming together and the Scripture saying that the two become one and that that oneness is what the picture of marriage was to be. Now, for all you married people out there and for all of you who observe the married people in your life, <laughs> you know very well that there are almost no couples <laughs> who find this easy and that are think the same, right? If oneness meant sameness, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because we are very different and we are very unique and some of those things are gender-related, and most of them are just personality and wiring and family background-related. But we are unique, unique individuals, and we very seldom think alike. But marriage calls us to oneness. Not sameness, but to oneness. And I believe what Jesus is praying for and the model for, for his followers and for the church of Jesus Christ is for us to walk and grow in oneness well, fully understanding that we are all unique and that we're not all going to think the same. But even in the midst of that, we're called, we're called to oneness. So, complete unity, it begins by understanding that it's relational, it's Trinitarian, it's oneness. So, complete unity is also visible. And when I say visible, I mean that it's visible because it's demonstrated by love. So, Jesus prays to the Father... And just the exchange between the two of them 
that shows their love for each other and how that love is demonstrated and modeled and visible for all to see. That is Jesus' heart. That's what he's praying for. And in fact, when we consider the love that the Trinity has for each other, amazing, but when we consider that the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love us, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 26, Jesus prays that the love that you and I, Father, have for each other, that the love that you have for me may be in them. Do you get that? Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's saying, this Trinitarian love that we have for each other, I'm praying for my followers to have that same kind of love for each other. So you want a high calling of love? That's what Jesus prayed for for you. Remember, this prayer is for all who will come after, who will believe because of their message. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that's you, that's me. And Jesus is praying for you that you would have the same kind of love that Jesus and the Father have for each other. That's a high, high standard, but that's the kind of love we're talking about. And think about that love. That love that was so deep that it became sacrifice of a life. A love that was so deep that it was complete dependence on each other. Think about how deep that love is that Jesus is praying for for us. So complete, complete unity is demonstrated love. But it's also demonstrated love for a purpose, right? Did you see in verse 21 that it says, why? So that the world may believe. Why are we to be unified? Why are we to discover this oneness and walk in it? It's so that the world will know, verse 23. So that the world may believe, verse 21. That's the heart of this. That's the purpose in this. Now, if you were a church-going Christian in the 1970s, when good hippie music started to invade the church, we used to sing this song, and some of you remember it. We would sing it. Was, it was unique because it was one of the first songs that was in a minor key. And so it was really cool if you were like a hippie teenager in the 70s. And anyway, the song would go, We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Anybody remember singing that song? I know I did a terrible job of it, but... Unbelievable words, right? But that's what it was about. How will the world know Jesus prays? When my followers demonstrate love and unity, then the world will know. You see, complete unity is testimony. It's witness by demonstrating love and unity. So, complete love is relational. Complete love is visible. And now here's the hard part. Complete, or sorry, complete unity is really hard work. I, none of you are disagreeing with me. Complete unity in every relationship and in the church is really hard work. Now, this is why Jesus prayed so passionately and so powerfully to his Father, that we be one, that we be unified for all time. A powerful prayer we need to keep coming back to. But you know, sadly, even though the church was birthed from Jesus' heart and prayer for the church, even right from the beginning of Acts, they had problems, they had conflict, they had struggles, they had disunity. And most letters in the New Testament that Paul writes, he's writing letters to churches because they're having problems, because they're having disputes. And, and you, you want to read about a messed up church? Read the Corinthians letters. That church was really messed up. As Bridgeway, you will feel like, oh man, we haven't got any problems. Look at the Corinthian church. So I'm just saying, humanity, our human <laughs> sinfulness, means that conflict will happen. And that's why unity is hard work. Now, a couple examples of how Paul picks up this theme when he's writing to the churches. So um, Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes to this church. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
So Paul's just going, oh, by the way, Jesus prayed for complete unity, and now I'll just call it perfect unity. If perfect means, like, mistake-free and sinless, well, then that's impossible. But, but perfect here is the same sense of complete. It means completion. It's the same idea. So he writes that to the Colossian church. And then he writes to the Ephesians, the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.3, and he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Did you, did you hear that? I think that's on the next slide. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, through Jesus' prayer and what Paul continues to teach the churches in the New Testament, here's, here's the hard work of unity. We're supposed to bear with one each other. How's the bearing going? <laughs> Isn't that so true? You know, the miracle of the church isn't supposed to be that all of these like-minded people who are the same get together and enjoy how the same we are and how we all like each other because we're all so similar. No, that's called social clubs and that can be easy to replicate. The church is supposed to be miraculous because a group of ragtag, ragtag sinful individuals like all of us can be together and actually create a community because we're unified in Christ because we're unified under something that's a way above all of our personal stuff and our personal quirks and our problems and our sin. We're unified in who we are in Christ. And so we have this amazing community because it's based on that. And so the fact that people who normally wouldn't hang out together do because it's community is the miracle of unity. And so it's no doubt that there's a lot of bearing. You look across this room and there's a lot of people that you disagree with. There's a lot of people that that are difficult for you. And yet, you know what? You're not called to um, gossip about it and <laughs> be annoyed about it and whatever. You're called to bear. Bear with one another. So hard to do, but what's we're called to do? Yeah, bear with each other. And then when we have grievances, you don't have any grievances with each other, do you? <laughs> then we're just to forgive as God forgives us. Forgive. Bear with each other, forgive. And then, of course, that line, make every effort. Wow. Make every effort. Oh, that's so convicting for me. I, I want to make effort when it's not too hard. I want to make effort if I feel like the other side um, is showing something to prove that they're owning something or, you know, then I'll make some effort. But am I willing to make every effort for the sake of unity? I like how this one theologian puts it. He says, the, uni the unity of the church is not something its members manufacture by being unusually nice to one another. <laughs> it is something that already exists. Paul tells his readers in Ephesians 4.3 not to create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, but to maintain it. Now that word maintain, it's the same Greek word that, that was translated in the NIV, make every effort. So in terms of unity, make every effort, maintain it. It's like the scripture is saying based on Jesus' prayer and God's heart for the church that unity should be an is. It's a command and it's to be an is in our relationships and in our churches. So what do we do in response? We don't have to necessarily try to find ways to create it. We need to walk in obedience, and we need to make every effort. We need to maintain, do everything possible to maintain that unity. That's what we're called to. So, tough word. One more quote from another, from another MB theologian, pastor. He said, Disunity is perhaps the greatest sin of all, for it is a rebellion against the heart and will of Jesus, and it snuffs out the glory of God. Wow. Wherever unity is preserved, the glory of God flames up with a glow that will attract the world. Now, this statement is both really hard to read and convicting, but it's also full of hope. And this is where I hope we can land today in, in responding together 
to this prayer of Jesus and this call to unity. You know, the first response to this for all of us is the response of repentance. Are we willing to obey the will of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, and respond to the prayer of Jesus? And be willing to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my part in bringing disunity. And I think you all know that could mean so many things. And you know, this, this kind of posture of humility and repentance is not a, I will repent if. If other people will make this movement. If other people will repent or say they're sorry, then I will. That's actually not repentance. Repentance is when we own our part in the disunity. It's not about anyone else at this point. It's about us. And so I know that's a hard word, but I want to call us as a church to that. If we can land in this kind of humility and this kind of repentance, true healing can come. As we make every effort to maintain that unity, that command, that prayer of Jesus. So I call you to that today. I call our church to that. Those listening online this morning or later, I call all of us to this kind of repentance. And then with that, I love the hope of this statement. Did you see the last line? Wherever unity is preserved, the glory of God flames up with a glow that will attract the world. You know, there are some of you that are very heartbroken that you feel like the witness in our community has been very tainted by what's gone on here. And I can't deny that there, there, there isn't truth to that. When, when we are not unified, we are not being the, living in that oneness and being that testimony to the world that Jesus prayed for, that Jesus called us to be. That's true. And that is heartbreaking. But you know, if we can come through this time with healing, repentance, and an even greater, deeper commitment to each other and to unity, that can bring back the glory of God even beyond. And there's real hope there. And the reason that I have hope is that through all of this, most of you have stuck around. It's been hard, and there's been times you've wanted to quit, and you've wanted to leave, and you've wanted to give up, and you wanted to just keep judging and being mad. But then something in your spirit said, no, that's not the right posture. I'm gonna hang in there. And you know what, maybe some of you are just hanging by a thread. It just takes the smallest thing to trigger all the anger and disappointment and everything else that's under the surface. You know what, I don't want to say that's okay, but I want to say that's okay, because you're hanging in there. Your Jesus is for you. Your church is for you. You're hanging in there for the church, even though it's hard. Because remember, unity is hard work. So can I encourage you, keep hanging in there, because if we can get through this, the glory of God that comes after a time of repentance and after a time of forgiveness and after a time of healing, that's the glory. That's the Christian message, that no matter how broken and sinful we are, that we serve a God who is forgiving, who died for sin, who made us, who was victorious over it, and who gives us hope and calls us to be the church. So that's our call. There is hope. Thank you for hanging in there. Jesus is with you and for you and going, good job, daughter, good job, son, you're hanging in there. Now let's take one step further from hanging in there to engaging again. Let's engage again. And that's hard work because that's the repentance to commitment, to healing, to hope. And it's a process. It's not gonna happen in a moment or a day. Come in the name of Jesus, can I call you to it? So I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come. We're going we're gonna to close in a song reflecting on prayer again and reflecting on the church and, and our call to that. And let, let this closing song be our prayer today. But let me pray over you now as, we, uh, as they come and prepare. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us so much. That yes, you died for us, you rose again from the dead, you gave us victory and hope and eternal life and forgiveness. And for all of that, we just stand in awe and we say thank you. And yet, Lord Jesus, today we're just so blown away that you prayed for us. You prayed that we would be one. You prayed that we as your church would experience the same kind of love for each other that you and the Father have. And Lord, we confess that seems impossible to us. But Lord, oh, Spirit of God, would you pour out in this room today and just break the impossibleness and bring hope to us. Oh, come, Holy Spirit, and bring hope to us. Oh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and bring us to a place of repentance. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and, Lord, that we would be willing to make every effort to maintain the unity, to see your unity come to your church. Lord Jesus, I pray for healing over Bridgeway Community Church. I pray for healing over every life in this room. I pray for healing over every relationship in this room, for every marriage in this room. I pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Ah, Jesus, you prayed for us. We now receive this prayer. Let us respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. slide up there. Let's all read it together. Build your church, Lord. Oh, back. We lost it. There it is. Everybody together. Build your church, Lord. Make us strong, Lord. Join our hearts, Lord, through your Son. Make us one, Lord, in your body, in the kingdom of your Son. Let that be our benediction and go with God's blessing. Have a great day.